One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today is the best-selling writer, Danny Shapiro. Danny is best known for the memoirs that made her name. Startlingly honest works of self-investigation, like Slow Motion, in which she examines the questionable decisions her younger self made. And let's face it, whose younger self didn't? And the book that catapulted her to the top of the bestseller list inheritance. In Inheritance, Danny explores the impact of taking a DNA test, just for fun, in her mid-50s, only to discover that her beloved dad was not actually her biological father. That book led to the top 10 podcast, Family Secrets, which features guests who have uncovered life-altering secrets themselves. It led me into this massive sort of trove of memory, recollected conversations, and then this detective-like search to find out who my biological father was and what had happened. It was unlocking those family secrets that enabled Danny to write her first novel in 15 years, Signal Fires, a bestseller since the day it was published in the States last year and praised by my fave, Jamie Lee Curtis, amongst others. It looks at what happens when one tragic mistake changes a whole family's lives and the pernicious influence of silence. Danny joined me from the East Coast of America to discuss how it feels to discover that you are your own family's secret, her allergy to empty nest syndrome, and why there should be a handbook for middle age. We talked about coming into your full potential at 60, losing your looks, I hope you could hear those inverted commas, when you've been told that they're your currency, and learning to count our ordinary blessings. Thank you very much for coming on The Shift. I really appreciate it. I've been fully immersed in Danny Shapiro the last few days. So um, I've been listening to Slow Motion. You read it on Audible, didn't you? I actually read it not that long ago because when it first came out, audiobooks were not a big thing. And so I had never recorded it. And then during the pandemic, my publisher asked me to record both slow motion and my my little book about writing, still writing. I did both of those during the pandemic, especially slow motion was really interesting because 
Mm. Here I was, you know, in my late 50s, recording a book that I wrote in my early 30s about my life as a 23-year-old. And my son is now the age I was that I was writing about. And it suddenly all became clear to me. And I was approaching the age that my parents were in their 60s when they were in that car accident, which seemed impossibly old to me at the time. But it was like speaking through all of these layers of time, all these different selves, all these different past selves. How was it revisiting that version of you? I felt and I feel continually a lot more forgiveness and a lot more compassion than I could ever muster up earlier. When I wrote Slow Motion, I felt distance from that poor girl as I thought of Mm. her, but I didn't feel a whole lot of compassion for her. I had the capacity, I think, to maintain a bit of remove so that I could interrogate, you know, what happened in some way that didn't feel self-protective. You know, I couldn't have written it any earlier than I did. And I don't think I could have really written it any later than I did. I think that was the right moment to write that book. I was close enough, but far enough away and really in a different stage of my life. And also, I was going to say I didn't have any rancor. I don't think that's entirely true. I think I had a good deal (laughs) of rancor toward my mother, but not toward, you know, the man that I call Lenny Klein in the book, I couldn't have cared less. I didn't care whether he ever read. There was no sense of revenge or settling a score or anything like that. It just wasn't there. I didn't care. So that, I think, also gave me the capacity to be able to to write it. When you were reading it, did you wish that you could, you know, get your little editor's pen out and make changes to the book that you had written 20 years? Was it 20 years earlier? Oh, yeah. Nearly 20 years earlier, yeah. It was, and um, actually a little more than 20 years. And yes, in fact, so I was recording it in a local studio. I didn't record slow motion in my house. It turns out that there's this great professional studio. I live in rural Connecticut, but 10 minutes from me, there's this fantastic studio. I mean, who knew? But I was in this little sort of sound booth and I had my headphones on and in my headphones, I had my director remotely. And every once in a while, I would stop and say, can I, can I redo that? I don't mean redo the sentence. Like, can I essentially rewrite that sentence or can I? And his phrase was author's prerogative, which apparently is a thing in the audio world. I didn't change a lot. And I didn't change anything just because I was embarrassed by it. There were one or two sentences in slow motion, one in particular that I wish that I could just expunge. But I didn't do anything like that. But I did sometimes rephrase something that I just felt would sound better than it would have been on the page. So the sentence that you wished you could expunge, was that because of your behavior or was it the writing? Oh, it wasn't either. It was actually what I think of now as, like I'll say this to students sometimes, there was a little of a little anger leakage. And the sentence that I wanted and still would wish that I could expunge essentially was a pot shot aimed at my mother's um, younger sister, my aunt, who is the person who called me to let me know that my parents had been in this horrific car accident. And her bedside manner was truly terrible. And she should never have been someone to break news like that to you know, a young person. But the line in the book was, Roz is a doctor's wife, the kind who thinks her marriage license is a medical degree. Yes, I remember and, that. <laughs> you know, I liked the line. I was pretty pleased with it. It was clever, but it was clever at someone's expense. And it would have made absolutely no difference to the reader's experience for that sentence not to have been there. And it hurt her feelings 
unnecessarily. You know, and I think the key there is unnecessarily because there certainly were moments in that book that I knew that there were some people who weren't going to be pleased with, but they were necessary to the telling of my story and my truth. But that wasn't one of them. Yeah, I was going to ask you, actually, the point that you switched from writing novels to writing memoirs, what led to that? Because I wondered whether that was to do with pivotal people in your stories having passed on. Mm. Well, I certainly don't think I would have, well, I wouldn't have written slow motion if my father had still been alive because the story was so much about the loss of him. Um, Mm. I had written three novels prior to slow motion and they were fine. Uh, The first two, I really feel like I was learning how to write in public. It was my graduate thesis degree, my master's degree that was a novel and was published. I kept on feeling like there was something that was haunting that early work. They were perfectly fine novels, but the three of them are out of print. One of them I would like to see back in print, but the other two, I'm completely fine with them being pulped because I was finding my way. But I had this sense in terms of craft, in terms of subject matter, that I was being pulled along by something that I wasn't in control of. And I really thought when I wrote that first memoir, Slow Motion, that it was like medicinal. It was Mm. curative for my fiction. I thought I would write that novel and that memoir and then return to fiction, which I did. I did return to fiction. And those next two novels that I wrote after Slow Motion were much better novels. And it was as if I had relieved myself of something by telling as a true story, truth being a complicated word, but that's the subtitle mm-hmm. for slow is a true story. I didn't want to call it a memoir. I really thought, well, now I've, now I've returned to fiction and here I am to stay. And it was very surprising to me that I found my, myself returning to the memoir form after those next two novels. And I think in retrospect now, I think really what it had to do with was that I was digging for something that I didn't understand. I was excavating. I was searching. There was something that didn't add up that I couldn't make sense of. And I kept trying to. And each one of those memoirs represents an attempt, an inquiry into discovering what it was that I sort of intuited, but didn't know. And I couldn't possibly have told you this then. It just Mm. seemed like I found a form in which to explore certain aspects of what it is to be human and using my own life and my own history as the material. So it wasn't that I was all that interested in my own life or my own history as much as I was interested in what do I believe? Or in the case of my memoir, Hourglass, what is it to be married to somebody for the long haul, knowing that you're in it with this person? Mm. I was really interested in this beautiful phrase by the um, poet and essayist Wendell Berry. He writes about the troubles of duration. And I thought, ooh, I love that. I want to Mm, explore the troubles. So things like that. But it wasn't that people I loved were gone per se. I actually found that in certain ways more challenging. I mean, after my mother passed away, I found it in certain respects more challenging to write about her. I felt like it almost wasn't fair. Like I was getting to have the last word and I was aware of the weight of that, the feeling of responsibility of that. Whereas when she was living, she was constantly fighting with me. So I felt like, well, all's Mm. fair. You can go ahead and write your own book if you like. But once she was gone, I didn't, I didn't feel that way anymore. It's interesting. It's interesting that you mention the troubles of duration. It's like thinking about Signal Fires, the the novel. One of the things that really struck me was how good it is on 
long relationships, the good, the bad, the indifferent, the ugly. There's not so much written about that, but and particularly not candidly. Mm. I love hearing you say that. And it continued and continues to be something that I think about because when I began Signal Fires, I actually started it years before I returned to it. My son, my, my only child, was young. And, you know, we lived in, as we still do in this community that we moved out of New York City to rural Connecticut into this area where other young families had sort of settled down and their children were going to school with my child. And we would, you know, see each other at various school events and social events. And I don't exactly live in a neighborhood. It's it's more rural than that. But I was thinking about neighborhoods. And certainly I grew up in a suburban neighborhood myself. But the ways in which when we are in that stage, of active parenting, as we now call it, or child rearing. If we have children, you know, in those years when we're raising our children, I think that there is very often, and I had it too, this feeling of this is the center of my life. And, you know, and everything leads up to it. And then supposedly everything after it is nostalgia for it. Um, (laughs) I don't feel that way at all. Never did. Wasn't sure I was ever going to have children. Even when I got married, wasn't sure that I wanted to have children. I'm very, very glad that I have my child, but I wasn't one of those people who defined myself as I want to be a mother. And nor did I feel like my life is going to be over when my child leaves home. People would start talking to me about, you know, I would hear them talking about the empty nest and I really just so rebel. I know, I so rebel. I'm allergic to that phrase. And when my son did go off to college, I would say, well, it's not empty. We're still in it. We are in the nest. It's our nest. There is a point to it just because they're not in it doesn't mean it's pointless now. Exactly. And so I think that the troubles of duration, what I found myself thinking is, these years, let's call it, let's call it 20 years of that period of time of raising a family, having children, being in the thick of it, you know, whatever that looks like for each of us. It's a chapter. It's just a chapter. It's not the longest chapter, hopefully. There certainly was a longer chapter that preceded it. And hopefully there's a longer chapter or multiple chapters that follow it. And so in writing Signal Fires, I was really thinking a lot about neighborhoods and these chapters and also the ways in which we sort of cast in life with the people who we end up being in that chapter with, whether or not we have a lot in common with them, whether or not we even like them. And sometimes if we're lucky, we do, but we are witnesses to one another's lives during that period of time. And I think that you say about the fact that basically that it's your children's friends. You just happen to have to hang out with their parents. And that's right. Shapes a large part of your life. That's right. And you're not choosing your children's friends and you're not choosing who their parents are. And it's very, I remember however old my son was when I realized that he had his own social life and that I didn't have to do that anymore. I practically wept tears of gratitude. (laughs) It's a different stage. I mean, I loved that stage, but it wasn't, it wasn't everything. And I think all of the characters in Signal Fires, but especially Ben and Mimi Wilf are contending, especially Ben, I think, contending with that feeling. What happens after that period of time of this act of building snowmen and sledding and weekends of homework and what comes after that? And the opening image for me of Signal Fires, when they first came to me, these characters, was of this older man, Ben Wilf, standing at the window of his home, and he's surrounded 
surrounded by boxes and he's looking out the window at this neighborhood that he's lived in longer than any place he's ever lived. And he can tell you everything about the people in those houses, even if he doesn't know them well. He can tell you who had a drug problem and got sent off to rehab and who smokes weed when, when she's walking her dog, you know, at night. Yeah. You know, who moved away and, you know, people's troubles and people's joys. And he's surrounded by boxes that he's clearly packed himself. And it's the last night that he's going to spend in that house. He just came to me fully formed. I mean, I haven't had that experience, but I really can imagine it. And and what the totality, what he would be thinking about, about this life in which he had a a long and contented marriage and in which he raised his children who are now adults and in which some difficult things happened as well. And just that was the impetus. And I think it came from thinking about those things in my own community and in my own life. So it started with that in your head rather than what I would have thought was that it started with the car crash that then gets in 1985, that then gets tucked in the family Pandora's box, never to be spoken of again. Partly because so much of your writing is about family secrets, not just inheritance, but so much. And my assumption was that you started with the secret. In a way I did, but I didn't know what it was yet. When I began the novel, it was with Dr. Ben Wilf and Waldo Shankman, the, the little boy who lives across the street. And they're encountering each other at their windows. And Waldo says to Ben, I'll meet you at the magic tree. And the magic tree is this massive oak tree that's on Ben's property. And Ben winces that Waldo calls the tree the magic tree. He winces and he has the thought that all the neighborhood kids call it the magic tree because they don't know what really happened there. They just know that it looks different from all the other trees. It has more flowers around it, sort of wild flowers. It's this sort of wild primordial patch of land in otherwise manicured suburbia. And so these generations of kids have called it the magic tree. So I knew that something terrible had happened at the magic tree. I knew that it involved the Wilf family. I knew that it involved probably the Wilf children, but I didn't know exactly what it was. When I write fiction, I often begin with a sense that something has gone very wrong and I write my way into what that thing is. But I wrote about a hundred pages of signal fires and then tucked them away in my own Pandora's box. You know, and, I, and one big chunk of it took place on this one evening in 2010 that I opened with. The next chunk of it took place on one evening in the year 1999, New Year's Eve, so essentially 2000. And it wasn't until 2020 that I revisited those pages and realized that I had written these two sections that were 10 years apart before I lost my way. And now it was 2020. And I thought, who who of these people become? And my head sort of exploded and I knew what to do. I knew it came together for me really in one glorious flash. And at that point, when I decided, okay, I'm sitting down and I'm coming back to this book, which I never thought I would, I knew that the very first thing I had to do was write the opening. I was at a point where I needed to know exactly what had happened at that tree. And I knew a couple of things about that. One was that I wanted the very first word of the book to be and. I mean, isn't the very first word of everything and? I mean, everything is always happening. It's already in motion. Mm. It's always happening. And I wanted to capture that in a very tight, intense, almost prologue that would be the accident, but would also allow the reader to enter this world knowing that 
time is not going to move in a linear way, that we're not going to turn the page and then it's going to be the day after the accident. We're going to make leaps in time. And what happened on that night, summer night in 1985, what happens in the first three or four pages of the book will inform almost everything that comes later for these characters, but in a way that has to do with aftermath. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have been obsessed with secrets all my life as a writer. I have much better, much greater understanding now of why, but that idea of you can't just shove something under the rug. It stays under the rug. Pandora's box, everything is as alive in there as it was when, when the lid was closed. And what does it mean to hold a secret of that magnitude, guilt and shame and, and to never speak of it. And I was, it wasn't so much that the family never spoke of it outside of the walls of their home. It was that they, there was some kind of unspoken tacit understanding between all of them that they were never going to speak of it with each other, which was the truly most damaging part. Do you think you were able to go back to it because of your own family secret and your own discovery of that secret? in between starting it in your late 40s, I guess, and going back to it, it must have been your late 50s. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. I feel in the years, the dozen plus years that passed from when these characters first really did appear to me fully, fully formed, all of them, and the time that I returned to it, a number of things happened. And any of which, if they hadn't happened, I think I wouldn't have been able to return to it and write the book that it became. So one of them was the discovery in 2016, after a lifetime of exploring secrets and identity, that in fact, I was my own family's secret. That my dad, who I've spent my life trying to understand, unpack, honor, you know, he died when I was 23, not a day goes by in which I don't think about him multiple times, that he was not my biological father. And I had no idea, consciously, no idea. And I say consciously because I find all that completely fascinating now. Um, yeah, so when you sent off the DNA test, it was literally just for fun. My, if my husband hadn't been doing it and said to me, you want to do it too? Uh, the thing about these home DNA tests is that the companies who do them lower the prices right before the holidays every year as holiday gifts for their families, which they do. And so my husband was just... He likes things like that. He likes all things tech. He was doing it. And, and I just sort of said, sure. I had no curiosity because I thought I knew everything that there was to know about my family tree. I didn't think that there would be any interesting surprises, but I did go ahead and do it. And when it came back, it was nothing but surprises. And my ethnicity was totally different than I thought it would be, or rather 50% different. There was a first cousin who was a total stranger who showed up on my page on the DNA testing site. And it led me into this massive sort of trove of memory, recollected conversations, and then this detective-like search to find out who my biological father was and what had happened. And because I'm a writer, that's what I did. It's the only way I know how to process anything. So when people said to me, like, how long did it take for you to realize you were going to write about this? It's like, there wasn't a time when I wasn't going to write about this. Yeah. <laughs> it was already, in my head was already trying to organize it into language because that's what I do, even though it took a long time to be able to do that. And during that period of time, you know, I, I had always thought about 
why certain people moments feel like they have a kind of familiarity or like, you know, we meet someone that we've never met before and think, I know you. Um, not like I know you, I've met you before, but just you are so familiar to me. Um, mm. Ease with each other or unease with each other. These are all very real. I mean, and we attribute them to chemistry or to coincidence, but I, I've always found that kind of mysterious and interesting. And I had this brief period of time, very destabilizing from the moment that I found out that my dad had not been my biological father. I've so identified with him with my ancestors on that side, with the whole family history. And it really took a, a shockingly brief period of time to find out what had happened and who was my biological father. It took just a couple of days using nothing more than like Google and Facebook. But during those days, as I was walking through the world, and I happened to be like during those days walking through airports and traveling and being in large spaces, every time I saw a man of a certain age, I would think to myself, you could be my father. You could be my father. You could be my father. And it was this feeling that I could have passed people who were profoundly genetically related to me, sisters, brothers, father, um, could have been in a room with them and not have known. So that feeling of why do we know what we know? Why do we why do we feel what we feel? I had spent my childhood feeling like there, there was some way in which I didn't fit in and didn't it didn't add up, my family. And then suddenly it made sense. And the face staring back at me in the mirror made sense to me for the first time in my life because it was a face that did not look like the people who raised me, which if I had been adopted and had known that I was adopted, I would have understood why I didn't look like the people mm -hmm. who were my but I didn't know that because it was a secret. So that was a big piece. I wrote Inheritance and it came out and it got a really tremendous amount of attention. And I was traveling all over the country, speaking to people who had had similar experiences. They were telling me their stories and they were telling me their secrets, which people always had done. People always told me their secrets. It's like I walk around with a big sign over my head saying like, confess. You can trust me. I'm but a writer. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, like during the period of time that inheritance came out, my husband was diagnosed with a very serious form of cancer. And we went through the better part of a year of his treatment. And thank God his full recovery, but it was very, very serious. And I experienced as an adult, something I had not experienced before, which was facing the profound loss of my beloved and my partner and the way in which you can be moving along and life is completely just ordinary. In a moment, everything can change and, and does change and does for all of us at some point in our lives. So to go back to what we were talking about, about troubles of duration, it spoke profoundly to me about that. And then we entered the pandemic. We all experienced that. We all across the globe experience the ways in which we are connected and the ways in which we are interdependent and the sort of absolute truth and unavoidability of that. And at the same time, we were experiencing that while so many of us were isolating and quarantining. Um, so we're experiencing both this connection and this loneliness. So I think all of those factors contributed to my being able to re-enter that material. It's like I had the characters years before I deserved them. you know. And then when I finally lived enough life to deserve them and they were ready for me and I was ready for them.
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It feels almost like you met them in the middle of their story as well, because the bulk of the events are in 2010, but it's 2020 that that they move on. Theo and Sarah, who are, uh, for the benefit of the listeners, they're the children of Ben. There's a really brilliant bit where Sarah basically says how, you know, you hit 40 and you suddenly think, oh my God, I need a guidebook. There's all this stuff that just is just around yeah. the corner. Yeah. You know, there's a popular book in the States. It's called What to Expect When You're Expecting. And then there's this other book called What to Expect the First Year and What to Expect the Toddler Years. And Sarah, who's the mother of young children, thinks there should be one of those for what to expect at midlife and what you should be able to do, might even oh, be able should, to do. Yeah. These things are all normal, but in a way, putting it away for 10 years and going back to it, apart from obviously your personal evolution during that time, the characters were able to evolve away from this massive moment of crisis, if you like. Yes, absolutely. And I think what also was exciting for me is that when we can have a glimpse of the future and that glimpse shows us that it's going to be okay, we can tolerate what's happening in in a particular moment. So when we have, for example, this character of Waldo, who's a He's. I, I love Waldo so much, and he's he's wonderful. He's, he's wonderful. He's brilliant, and he's strange, and he's different, and he's lonely. You know, one so wants to know that he's going to be okay. And the structure of allowing us to just have these glimpses, you know, some of the glimpses are in 2020 and some are little, tiny little glimpses of beyond that. I think it makes Waldo's life as an 11-year-old bearable and beautiful for us because we know, we know that it's going to work out for Waldo. And I did an event recently in person and there was a large crowd and we were talking about Waldo and I asked for a show of hands, how many of you 
would go back to middle school if you were given the choice. And oh, not God, one. No. No. <laughs> not one single person in a crowd of 200 people raised their hands and say, yes, me, I'd like to go back to middle school. In a way, you know, when you're at that very awkward age, adults often say to you, just wait, it's going to be better. It's going to get better. And you don't believe that when you're 11 or 13 or 15, you don't believe that you can't imagine that it will ever be better. But I think we can all agree that we don't want to peak at that age. We don't want those to be the best years of our lives. They're supposed to be challenging and, you know, we're our identities are sort of being developed and formed. And so it was really thrilling for me to be able to make those leaps forward and see. Is there an age you would want to go back to? Oh, that's a great question. I would like to know everything I know now and be around 45. But no, because I am so liberated by what I know now. I am so thankful. It could have been otherwise in in my life and i am i am incredibly to the depths of my being thankful that in the fullness of time i learned what i learned i was able to put the pieces together we're here to experience life you know and some of it is extremely painful and some of it is extremely beautiful uh, but you don't get the beauty without the pain you know as rilke said you know the beauty and the terror we don't get to have one or hopefully we don't get to have one. And the knowledge, you know, I mean, there just are times where I definitely think, wow, I'm in a really in the best patch that I've been in my whole life in terms of where I am in, in my own sense of myself, of the world, my family, the gratitude that I feel for my husband's recovery, the gratitude I feel for my son's thriving, and the gratitude that I feel for all of these things that I am getting to do at the age of 60 that are just like moonshots. If you had told me 10 years ago that I would have created a, a podcast and that lots of people would be listening to it, I would have said, what's a podcast? Or yeah. like really interesting film and television adaptations, that this novel that I, that I did return to fiction, that I wrote a book that's resonating with people, that I teach and love my students and get to have just this really rich and varied life. That to me is I couldn't have had that earlier. So I love the question. It's a provocative question. Well, I mean, I think for me personally, my 40s were the pits. I often get messages from listeners to the podcast who are probably in their 40s and they just want to know that it's going to get better. And the, a lot of the women that I speak to who are in their maybe early 40s, hard to say, the people who are having a tough time are much more likely to be in their 40s than in their 50s and 60s. And I think, I don't know whether this is true for you, but... I definitely found that that kind of fear of being, I don't know, redundant, obsolete, whatever the word is, that you want no longer relevant, that loomed large for me in my 40s. And now in my 50s, I feel like through that, if you like, and I feel like there's a phrase that you use about Sarah, how um, a quiet determination had replaced her frenetic energy um, in terms of getting things done. And I think that that really, really struck a chord with me because that kind of 30s, 40s, busy, busy doing, got to be super, super productive versus like, this is what I want to do. And this is I'm going to do it and getting on and doing it. I just think that that for me personally, that has been a big shift in that decade. I love that. It, it's calling to mind. There's a phrase it's um, in Buddhist literature that always strikes me when I when I read it, which is by and by an effortless effort takes over, which doesn't mean that it's not effortful. I think there's a tremendous difference between striving and grasping and mm. true ambition. I feel true ambition. 
Um, I continue to feel it. I do care about relevance, but it's a different kind of caring about relevance. It's a much longer view. You know, like when, when Inheritance came out and it just got all this attention and all of these things that I had always wanted, you know, I, I mean, I've had a wonderful career, but I you know there were things that I wanted that I hadn't gotten. And then I got them. And I remember, you know, thinking I wouldn't have appreciated this earlier in my 30s or my 40s. I would have felt somehow, I think perhaps more like, well, I deserve this. And I've seen it in others. I've seen it in writers, say, whose first book becomes a huge, massive success. I've seen it so many times. And when that happens, there can be this feeling of, well, this is because I'm brilliant. So clearly, (laughs) this is going to continue in this way because I have been anointed. And it almost never continues in that way. It was a fluke because these things are flukes to some degree. I'm not saying some books aren't better than others. Certainly they are. But there's some way in which the stars have to align and everything has to sort of work in concert for those kinds of moments to happen. And I really understand that. And so the feeling was instead of entitlement or deserving, it was much more gratitude. And how can I meet this moment? How can I rise to this occasion? And that's a very different kind of feeling. I think as well that there is a sense, you know, the way that society functions is that there's a sense, well, if you haven't done it by the time you're 40, you're not going to do it. And you were kind of over the hill. And that's, well, painfully rubbish. But also, you know, I see so many women and speak to so many women who are professionally on a, yeah, second wind, for want of a better way of putting it, in their kind of 50s and 60s and beyond. Yes. On my 40th birthday, we had a party. And I remember thinking that I needed to wear something appropriate. I remember going shopping for my 40th birthday party. And I still have both items that I bought because they were very, very classic. I was a black silk skirt that was knee length and a black (laughs) cashmere camisole and v-neck but not too low. And my heart sort of aches. And I also laugh at that 40 year old that, I mean, to me from where I sit now, and you know, we had dinner with some people in their early forties this past weekend, and they're like young and gorgeous and juicy and Mm. they have young kids. I think that there is always a point where if we're lucky enough to age, we look back and think that was young and that Mm. continues. I have a very dear friend who's 86 and she recently lost her husband. She has four grown children. She has grandchildren. She has two great grandchildren. And she's very, very wise. And I was speaking with her on the phone last week and I asked her, what was it like? Do you remember what it was like to turn 60? She thought about it for a bit and she said, you know, I really don't remember. She said, I remember 50. God, that was young. (laughs) And she said, I remember 80. I don't remember 60. I just don't remember. But, you know, the idea from the perspective of an 86-year-old, 50 was so young. That's how it, I think it always is for us as we continue. I mean, there's a lot of power, by which I mean like personal power in not needing everyone to love you, understanding Mm. that your 
not for absolutely everyone. You know, you're, you're, you know, always continuing to sort of find your way and build your life. And that absolutely, I mean, to me, I look to the elders and I know people look to me and consider me that like people who are 30 think that's me. I look to Margaret Atwood and I look to Virginia Woolf in terms of people who have come before. Uh, I look at Helen Mirren. I did an event with Margaret Atwood a a few years ago and, you know, and there she was in her 80s, you know, delivering a keynote just like I was, you know, up there owning her, her life her position, her her place in the world. And I think that it's very difficult to do that when you're younger. There's much more comparing that goes on, more competition. And the feeling that time is slipping away actually, I think, only becomes real when you're older. It's, it's a figment and a, and a fantasy. The idea Time is not slipping away when you're in your 40s. You're in your prime when you're in your 40s. If you live a full lifespan and nothing cuts that short, you're in the middle. You're in the middle. What a great place to be. Right at the beginning when we were talking about you reading slow motion for Audible, that girl, not the Danny who wrote it, but the Danny in the book, it was so interesting. It was interesting listening to it with the benefits of also just having read Inheritance and Signal Fire. So it's obviously these kind of Dannys were piled up, different Dannys. I think there's a point in slow motion where you talk about the dreadful Lenny and, you know, that he says to her, you know, women are over the hill when they're 30 and lots of other offensive things. But I think when you're in your 20s, you kind of believe that a little bit anyway. You see that society, hopefully it's improving, but who knows. Society's reflecting that back at you and you were and still are, frankly, stunning. Was that something that worried you as you were as you were aging and, and growing up? Because, you know, you, you write about briefly at that time of your life, basically using your fantastic looks and that, that time of your life when you were acting before you found your proper course. Yeah. Uh, thank you for asking that because I, I never get to talk about it. And it's something that I, I start to feel comfortable now talking about as someone who's, who's older and who is a little bit more, a little bit more invisible when I walk down the street. Um, I mean, we do as just as human beings, human nature sort of gravitate, our eyes sort of gravitate to youth. And I think because a great deal was made of the way that I looked in my family growing up in my community, sort of, you know, the people that I was surrounded by, that I spent some years there really thinking that that's all I had. And that's a terrible place to be, because if that's all you have, first of all, let's go back to deserving. You don't deserve mm. it. In my case, like <laughs> really genetic fluke. And you're going to lose it, because if youth and beauty are your currency, every day you're losing it a little bit. And there's power in it too, but it's it's not real power. You can experience it as real power when you're in the throes of it, in the midst of it. But I think you come to know that it's not real power. I mean, there were certainly times, even in my life as a very young writer, where my first book was coming out. So it was the late, very late 1980s. And, you know, very late 1980s in New York City was a very particular kind of place mm. full of excess and a great focus on power and wealth. And I remember being at these publishing events and being surrounded by like the most powerful men in the room and knowing that the only reason I was being surrounded by the most powerful men in the room was not because I had a first novel coming out that, you know, people were very excited about. It was because 
they thought I was pretty. And they gravitated like moths to a flame to the pretty woman. And, you know, it's a trope. The pretty woman would gravitate toward the powerful men. But I was conscious of it, even as it was happening. And it didn't make me respect myself. It didn't make me like myself. And it also made me feel like, well, that's why I'm here. Uh, in my very first novel, my publisher, instead of going out and getting quotes, getting great blurbs from literary writers, instead of sending me on a book tour, spent, I think, something like six or $7,000 on my author photo. And I didn't know any better. I was 27 years old. I really didn't, I didn't have enough of a sense. There are 27-year-olds who do, much more now than, mm, than back then. Yeah. I mean, I take responsibility for this, but it came from that feeling, well, this is what I have. And that is, I'm happy to report, so completely gone. You know, and it's not that I don't care. I do care. I like dressing up and I like looking nice and I like I like it that you said that I'm stunning. That made that made me happy. Um, yeah. It's not like I'm immune, but it's not what I'm leading with. It's not what I've built my life on. It's a great source of satisfaction to me. Actually, I'm realizing this just now saying this to you, that I have this popular podcast because nobody's seeing me. You know, when you have a podcast, it's entirely ear to ear, voice to voice. That's what people are hearing. And I I love that. And reading as well. I mean, people aren't thinking, you know, what does the writer look like who's written this book? It's a very different, different way of thinking of it that has happened over the decades and for all of those reasons. So your podcast, it's like 27 million downloads or something now. I'm very jealous, I have to say. <laughs> well, it turns out family secrets. Um, yeah, there's a few of every, them. Yeah. Every family has them. And I think the podcast was very much, you know, organically came out of writing inheritance and people starting to share their stories with me. And the thought, I wonder, you know, I wonder if there's a forum for this. I wasn't even a big podcast listener, you know, in 2019. I mean, the timing was very good. I don't run out of stories um, and I don't go looking for them. I mean, really almost every day I'll be reading something. There'll be an article in the paper or somebody will have a book coming out or a film coming out or, you know, just a news story or a story on the radio. And I'll think, that would be great. And then we reach out to that. I mean, that's, that's how it's happened. And I've, and I've always said that I would stop if I ran out of great stories to tell, or if I started, you know, repeating myself, but the stories don't repeat. Uh, and part of that is that every story of a secret really is unique in the details, but also in the way that we respond and the different kinds of secrets. The, the secrets that we keep are very different and act upon us very differently than the secrets that are kept from us. And then, you know, the tagline of the show is the secrets we keep, the secrets that are kept from us and the secrets we keep from ourselves. And to mm -hmm. me, the secrets we keep from ourselves is the most resonant thing because, you know, in a way, I mean, to go back to my discovery about my dad, you know, I, I, I told you I didn't know it consciously. But when I went back and after I made the discovery and as I was writing Inheritance, when I went back and reread my earlier work, there it was. It's there. It's there in slow motion. Mm. It's there in still writing. It's there in devotion. It's there, really there in almost all of my books in a way that absolutely took my breath away because I thought I knew. 
I mean, my unconscious, it's there on the page in black and white in print. And the thing about when we make a discovery that's as massive as the one that I made is memory is such a changeable thing. Our memories change every time we remember something neurologically. So if I didn't have that shelf full of books, I could say to you, well, I think I always knew, or I remember this, or I had this thought when I was 27. And I wouldn't really know if it was true or not because our recollections Mm -hmm. change always. But that's not the case with me. I actually have a shelf full of books with proof of what I knew and what I didn't know. Like you said, the, you know, the pile of different Dannys, you know, like what I knew at 27, at 35, at 42. And so I'm able to really see the unthought known. And mm. I that's so resonant and I talk about it sometimes on my podcast what we know, absolutely know, you know, in our in our marrow, but is too dangerous to think. So we simply never think it. But that doesn't mean we don't know it. It doesn't mean it doesn't act upon us. It doesn't mean that it doesn't chisel away at our lives, but we don't hold it as a conscious thought. When I was listening to Slow Motion, I was thinking, with the benefit of massive hindsight, there are so many side-on references to, I guess, his, your father's ability to leave a room while still being in it, your countless references to you not looking like them. Did your parents' siblings know your biological father was a sperm donor? I think that my parents uh, really, they would have been told, as my research showed me, they would have been told, never tell a soul, never tell anyone. This has to be only between you. No one will ever know. I have had a hunch that my mother's sister, she of my pot shot, um, they had a very, very symbiotic relationship. And Roz's husband was a doctor and a very good doctor and one who my parents had a great deal of respect for. And it wouldn't surprise me if Roz and Hai had known. There were things my mother said over the years. For example, Hai was in the delivery room when I was born. He didn't deliver me. He didn't have privileges at that hospital. I was born in New York City. He was a doctor in New Jersey. Why was he in the delivery room? And my mother used to tell it in her sort of grand way as just a great story. But my theory now is if my mother knew that she was pregnant with a donor's sperm, that meant that she was really for nine months carrying something extremely unfamiliar, unknown, strange inside of her in her pregnancy. And so when she was giving birth on some primal level, she must have been terrified. Every woman giving birth is terrified, but she must have been terrified in a very particular way. And so it it would not entirely surprise me if she had told her sister and brother-in-law. Other than that, I was able to ask my mother's oldest best friend. She never knew anything. I was able to ask my father's sister, to whom I'm very close, who's still living, and she's 97 years old now. She never knew anything. And if my father had ever told anyone, I think it would have been her. There was so much shame involved in infertility and in, you know, in that process. And when there are secrets, it's because there is shame. Um, So I Mm. think that, no, I think that has been the only thought I've had And I wish I could know for sure, but it will remain a hunch. Thank you. Right, I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask at the end. What is your emotional age? (laughs) 95. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I would say my emotional age is the age that I am now. Why is that, do you think? 
Because I'm very in touch with, especially and in, in increasingly as I get older, I'm in touch with my younger selves. I think about 17-year-old me. I think about six-year-old me. I think about 30-something-year-old me. I feel like I'm able to reach out a hand to those younger versions of myself and be protective and kind and compassionate and in some way perhaps mediate in what wasn't possible or what was painful or what wasn't yet known. But it's definitely coming from where I stand, the, you know, sort of the ground that I stand on today. Um, give us a book recommendation. Well, I reread Mrs. Dalloway on a pretty regular basis. So I'll go with that. Uh, what advice would you give younger women? To be more patient and kinder with themselves. I think that we tend to speak to ourselves more harshly than we would ever allow ourselves to be spoken to by anyone else. And to sort of have a relationship with that internal voice. What's your superpower? My willingness to be vulnerable and the fact that my willingness to be vulnerable doesn't make me feel vulnerable. That's fascinating. That's a whole another hour's conversation. Do you think that's helped you write so many memoirs? Oh, tremendously. You know, early on, people would say to me things like, they still say them, but they would say things like, oh, you must feel so exposed, or I feel like I know everything about you. And this thing would start happening where people would like not even ask me anything about myself, like a new friend or something like that. And it would be because they had read my work and they felt that they knew me. And at first I, th I thought to myself, what's wrong with me? Because I don't feel exposed and I don't feel vulnerable. And yes, it's true that you know a lot about certain aspects of my life because you've read my work or because I'm getting up here and giving a speech in front of you, but that does not make me feel exposed and that does not make me feel naked and that does not make me feel vulnerable. It makes me feel connected and strong, but more than anything, I would say connected. Um, I mean, I used to be petrified of public speaking, petrified. And now I'm really comfortable speaking publicly. And I think that the shift was that realization. I'm connecting. Everyone who I'm speaking to has the same vulnerabilities and the same burdens. I mean, they, they may be different in their weight and they may be different in their exact details, but we all have them. And I think really the realization that we all have them released me from that kind of self-consciousness and from that fear of difference or of Mm. of being othered or ostracized or ridiculed in some way, of, of being authentically yourself and being rejected. And all I know is that being authentically myself has led to the greatest sense of connection and identification and like a sort of relationality that the more I'm able to be specific about my own emotional life, the more I connect, the more I have people saying to me, me too. That's great. Last one. How many fucks do you give? Maybe a half a fuck. <laughs> Just the half. What's the half for? I get caught up. We all get caught up. My ego gets pricked or something happens that isn't what I wanted. And it takes me my capacity to recover from those kinds of like, you know, what, what would have been a gaping wound is now like, ooh, ouch. Okay. And that again, I think has to do with, with the fullness of time. Thank you so much. I've absolutely loved talking to you. Thank you. Oh, I absolutely love talking to you too. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts.
If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash the shift. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.